Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. On this episode, we have a guest who has worn many hats. Right after college, she worked at J.P. Morgan until she decided to become a physician. After earning her medical degree from Downstate College of Medicine, she trained as a surgeon for two years before deciding to flip to the less invasive side of medicine and specialize in psychiatry. Until recently, she held a teaching faculty role at the UCLA Women's Life Center, where she was devoted to mental health care for peripartum and perimenopausal mood disorders. She's now in private practice, specializing in reproductive psychiatry, and has a whole bunch of kids. Dr. Kirsten Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Um, I get the joy of speaking to you from time to time and learning stuff from you and uh, being impressed at how mellow and laid back you are. I try. Especially given what you do, which is not uh, always light and easy. No. In fact, you know, you said less invasive. I think psychiatry in a lot of ways is more invasive Ooh. than surgery because you just go deep on you, the emotional things. You go things. deeper the pain, with the, the talk yes. than you do with the scalpel. They're both invasive. Oh, okay. I change it <laughs> to a different type of invasive medicine. In this little segment, let's talk about your background. Where did you come from? And I mean, what an interesting path. So I'm from upstate New York, originally Rochester. Cold. Very cold, lots of snow, very little sun, kind of the opposite of Los Angeles. Um, and I went to college at Cornell in upstate New York as well. And What'd then you study? I studied engineering. What? <laughs> I always loved math and science. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was a dork from the beginning. <laughs> um, and then right after college, I graduated around the dot-com boom. So I moved to New York, wanted to be on Wall Street when companies were kind of going public right and left. And it was kind of a really fun time to be in business and finance. Oh, I'll, so the math side of things. Yeah, exactly the math side of things. So, uh, you know, I thought it would be fun. And then, unfortunately, my first day of work was September 11th, 2001. Oh, gosh. Otherwise known as 9-11 now. So it was kind of a harrowing first day of work. And I was about a block and a half away from the trade towers when they fell. Wow. So I had this really sentinel experience where I was kind of running for my life. Luckily, I was totally fine. But um, I was looking around me and seeing all these people in suits kind of running and clutching their bags. And I thought I was going to die. And I thought, this is how I'm going to die if I'm, you know, 65 and I'm doing doing this, and my life was just about making money, um, would I really be happy? And the glaring answer for me was no. So I went home and I started kind of volunteering at night. I still worked during the day for a couple of years and on Wall Street to support myself, but I started doing volunteer programs at night throughout New York, working a lot with women in health and medicine to try to figure out what I wanted to do next. Wow. What a tricky time. Yeah. To just be there. I mean, even after the dust sort of settled. Yeah. A lot of soul searching. Yeah. I did not know that. Oh, okay. It's like sort of like a whole other podcast. <laughs> so working, your volunteer work is what led you into medicine? Yeah. I mean, I actually originally wanted to be a physician when I was probably 12. Um, and then I went to college and, you know, things sort of temporarily changed. But I think that moment actually on September 11th was where I realized like life is short. You have to do what's meaningful to you and what will lead to a good life. And to me, that was helping people and kind of going back to medicine, which I, was always, I had always been fascinated by. So yeah, I did these volunteer opportunities and then I did a post-bac program at Columbia, which means taking the pre-med classes so you can apply. And I went to med school in Brooklyn at the very old age, or so it seemed, of 26. <laughs> and that's how I 
got onto the path of becoming a doctor. It is a little older than probably the other people around you. Oh, yes. It felt like ancient at the time. <laughs> I literally cried the first two weeks because I felt so old at 26, which now seems ridiculous because yeah. I have friends that I'm encouraging to go to medical school at like 45. Mm-hmm. It's all relative. Sure, it's relative. Uh, what led you to surgery? I think the sort of like immediacy of the satisfaction of kind of, you know, someone has a problem like a cancer, you, you know, essentially cut them open and take it out and they're healed. And I also really liked kind of working with my hands. That was really satisfying. So I think that was kind of those were the two big things, kind of just the satisfying notion of it. And yeah. I mean, is it? it's going to be like a big moment when you're cutting people open and they're alive but sleepy and, you know, fixing the insides. I mean, I know you like working with your hands, but is there a bigness to that? There's a hugeness to it, for sure. I mean, I only did it for two years of training, but, you know, held hearts in my hands and held lungs as we transplanted them from one human to another. I mean, to me, it was profound. And I'm really grateful for those two years, even though I didn't end up staying in surgery. So then what moved you away from that? I was sort of an odd duck as it comes to (laughs) to surgeons. Um, You know, people used to tell me, you know, you're too nice to be a surgeon, which, you know, of course, all surgeons are not mean, horrible people. (laughs) But there was, you know, there was many moments where I trained at USC and we had a lot of trauma victims and we had a lot of gunshot victims. And there were a couple moments where I just felt like this isn't a great fit for me. For example, one night we had two 18-year-old kids who had both been stabbed in the heart and, oh and literally God. died, you know, moments after coming in. the trauma, we, we as part of the trauma team kind of ran in to try to save them both, and then they both couldn't be saved and kind of had sort of died on the table. And I was the one who sort of stood in the room and held their hand while they died, while everyone else, you know, the person had died, so they kind of ran to the next trauma. And there was something to me really profound about transitioning from life to death and that that person, you know, didn't deserve to be alone. You're like an end-of-life doula. Yeah, yeah, I guess you kind of, yeah. Surgeon. Um, so there was that, and I just felt like, as I sort of have gotten older, I think kind of our internal mind and our perspective and our emotions is so much more interesting to me. And I think I learned that myself, just kind of getting older and doing my own therapy and seeing this whole world open up of the mind and mental health and pain and emotion and human experience and everything that kind of goes along with it. So that was a huge part of it. I would say that's the biggest part of it. The other part of it was I was working 110 hours a week, and I wanted to eventually have a family and a life. And I don't think it would have been that easy as a surgeon because I was working basically, or I was working six days a week and sometimes 32-hour shifts um, <laughs> without sleeping at all. And so you it, don't really want to know that your surgeon <laughs> is on the 31st hour of a shift. Totally, no, it's not ideal I for used anyone. I do ambulances and sometimes do really long times out in the field, and just at some point the numbers on that little syringe, you know. They get blurry. Yeah. there's. I mean, there's been studies done on it. It's equivalent to being drunk, right, when you don't sleep for two days at a time. So it is kind of scary. Yeah, we're not built that way. No. It would be cool if we just pop out a battery and put in a fresh one. I know. Caffeine. We try, but it doesn't work. No, not so well. (laughs) So then psychiatry. And also you you have these, like, big epic things in your transitions. Like, I'll go work on Wall Street, and then 9-11 happens. And then I'll go work in surgery, and then... People are dying on your table, like young Mm. people are dying on your table. So those are kind of psychological events of themselves. 
Yeah, completely. I think I definitely had a little PTSD, I would say, after 9-11. Some of my friends and family said, you know, you really changed. You were super contemplative. And That's I think, a big word. <laughs> yes, I'm going to contemplate that word. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, much like life in general, right, we go through these huge traumas and terrible experiences, and there is a silver lining, I think, if we look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it for or me. Or can change you, yeah, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, why women's health? Because your psychiatry is a specialty, and then women's health specifically a more narrow subspecialty. Um, I guess... There's a a couple of reasons. I think in my own way, I knew I wanted to get pregnant and I had a little bit of anxiety and sort of own personal struggles there initially. And that sort of and I'd had friends who had sort of gotten pregnant before me and had fertility issues or pregnancy issues and miscarriages. And it was like this little door that opened into a different universe that I didn't know existed Hmm. before I contemplated having kids. So that was that was a big thing. And it was a, a door that showed a darker side, right? So you see moms on the street and they have babies and everyone's happy and people love babies. But then you start to hear about friends, if they're comfortable, talking about miscarriage and, you know, hard times getting pregnant or getting pregnant and how hard it is. And it, you realize there's a lot of anxiety and depression behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that was fascinating. Also, the fact that there's so many ways to get better. Um, so for a lot of medicine, you know, that is chronic, we don't have treatment that's effective. But for the sort of reproductive life cycle, we have things we can do that help women. And so getting better is a nice thing to participate yeah. in. Yeah. Before we go to our first break, can you define peripartum and perimenopausal? Yes. So peripartum means around pregnancy. So for someone who's planning pregnancy, well, that would be pre-pregnancy, but pregnant or around the pregnancy itself. So postpartum being after birth. And then I already forgot the second part. Perimenopausal. (laughs) Sorry. Perimenopausal is actually preceding menopause. So menopause is defined as 12 months without a period. And so perimenopause can be up to 10 years before menopause and can include symptoms that may be sort of thought to be menopausal symptoms. So if someone can be perimenopausal and even in their late 30s but have hot flashes or irregular periods or hormonal changes, so symptoms that are leading up to menopause, but not yet menopause. And I just bring those up because this is the population that you work with, right? Peripartum, perimenopausal, and reproductive uh, psychiatry. Exactly. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the conditions that come up during these phases of life and um, how they can be treated. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Dr. Kirsten Thompson. I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. 
Both are great options for nausea and sensitive prone mamas. Needed's omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those omega-3 plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing an awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners. Buy two, get one free on either omega-3 option, powder or capsules. You can stock up on either one or try them both. With this exclusive discount, use code 3BERLIN, the number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Put three omega-3s in your cart, use the code number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Buy two, get one free. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Kirsten Thompson. All right. So your specialty is uh, mental health, especially around reproductive years. If somebody has mood and anxiety issues before pregnancy and now they're planning a pregnancy, what are some of the considerations to take into mind? So the first one would be to make sure you're advocating for yourself, meaning getting good care and, if possible, kind of planning pregnancy and making sure you're getting good information. So, for example, many very well-meaning physicians hear that someone's trying to plan pregnancy and say, oh, you have to go off all your medication, go off that Zoloft, go off that Xanax, um, without knowing the woman's own mental health history. And so we as women really need to kind of advocate for ourselves because if a woman has a history of, for example, severe depression where they attempted suicide and their doctor doesn't know that but tells them, hey, go off your medication, the risk of being off medication may be far worse than the risk of being on medication. The doctor you're talking about, the OBGYN? Yeah, OBGYN or primary care. Even, you know, friends and family can be well-meaning but not know a patient's history and say, you have to get off your medication without knowing the risk of being off medication. And so it's really important for women to kind of make sure they're getting the right information. What are You mentioned severe depression, but what are some of the other conditions that fall into these categories? Sure. So... You know, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and certainly things like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, which can include kind of a psychotic component and symptoms in that realm. And even things like ADHD, you know, a lot of women think they absolutely have to go off their stimulant medication because they want to get pregnant. And that may be true and that may be fine for them. But for example, sometimes I have a patient whose ADHD is so severe that if they go off their medication, they may get in a car accident. And if they've got five kids and they want to get pregnant with the six, we don't want to risk them getting in a car accident and, you know, killing their whole family, worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just makes sense to be really informed about each individual medications and the risks of being on them and then off them before deciding what to do. So somebody who's already taking medications and then they want to get pregnant, they're going to advocate for themselves, but where do they get the best sources of information? Like who is the best person to talk to? So if it's a psychiatric medication or a mental health medication, I would certainly advocate for having an informed psychiatrist. You know, plenty of people get their mental health medications from their primary care physician or even their obstetrician. 
But sometimes to get a more detailed explanation of things during pregnancy, it, I would definitely advocate for talking to a psychiatrist, kind of like myself or someone who works in reproductive psychiatry and knows the data and the risks and benefits of medication during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So even if a psychiatrist prescribes the medication that you're taking, you might want to go one step further to a psychiatrist who has reproductive experience. Is there additional training for it? Yes, exactly. Because some I get a lot of patients actually that I see as kind of a one-time consultation because their psychiatrist is simply not comfortable prescribing medication while they're pregnant. So I even you know see people who their psychiatrist literally says you have to go off your medication or I won't see you while you're pregnant, and that puts the woman in a, you know a terrible situation. That sounds awful because they're basically losing care and if they go uh, if they stay on their medication. So sometimes it, it is unfortunate that that's a situation first of all, and that you know all psychiatrists are not fully informed about medications during pregnancy, but that's the case. So I would say, yes, definitely see a reproductive psychiatrist to get the details regarding medication during pregnancy. I wonder, you know, there could be no correlation at all, but I wonder the effect of pregnancy on mental health. Sometimes, for example, in my line of work, chiropractic care, we'll see somebody who has chronic migraine headaches, somebody who has awful carpal tunnel syndrome, sciatica, and then they get pregnant and those pregnancy hormones kick in and everything that's too stiff, tight, and restricted, compressing a nerve or compressing a blood vessel just magically loosens up and they feel so good during pregnancy. I'm always like, oh, you're going to have like 12 kids because (laughs) when those hormones go away, some of those issues tend to come back. What effect does pregnancy tend to have, or maybe it's very different from person to person? Could somebody feel better just from the pregnancy hormones? It's possible, but I think there's a misconception that pregnancy is protective, and I think that sort of does a disservice to most women because they think they should feel better, and a lot of women actually end up feeling worse because of the hormonal changes. So much like women in general, it's all on a spectrum. So some may feel better, and you know their mood may improve, and their anxiety may improve, and I do see that sometimes, but they may feel worse, and they may certainly have depression, which often starts during pregnancy, even though we think a lot about postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the same for us also. The other side of that coin is sometimes people who never had headaches or never had rib pain or sciatic pain all of a sudden during the pregnancy will start to get these symptoms. So when somebody doesn't have a known mood or anxiety disorder or condition and then during pregnancy starts, and I see this just in my practice alone, someone will say, for the first time in my life, I'm starting to feel depressive thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that must happen to people during pregnancy. When you start to feel things that you're not used to, um, anxiousness that you just can't clear your mind the way you used to, um, insomnia because you can't sleep because of that anxiety or depressive feelings, where do you go for help with that? So if you're, you mean first-timers, in other words. Yeah, first-timers, you're just like 20 weeks into a pregnancy, and all of a sudden you're feeling things, and you're in tune with those feelings. Is that something that I would bring to my obstetrician, or do I call my primary care physician? And then even within mental health, it seems like there are therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. Who do I go to? Well, I think the first line of defense is usually the obstetrician because that's where the frequent appointments are. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a good first step just to 
you know, for a woman to get some help initially, and they can often refer patients out to psychiatrists. I think also, you know, in the vein of trying to go least invasive as possible, I'm a fan of therapy for everyone. So I think if a woman is open to therapy, kind of starting with finding a therapist who can then refer her to a psychiatrist for medication, Mm -hmm. if needed, is a good option because I think most people benefit from more support and therapy can do that. But I think the most important piece is really just not hiding those emotions and feelings and getting help, telling somebody, even if that means telling a partner or a family member or someone to trust so that they can even help get help, if that makes sense. Because sometimes if you're starting to feel depressed, you know, you don't even want to pick up the phone call to make a doctor's appointment and you need help. And so letting people know around you that you trust, I think, would be the first step. Yeah. And I think it can be scary. I I think I sometimes end up putting the therapy in massage therapy, like when people are relaxed enough and comfortable enough. And I just walk in and say, how are you feeling today? And we're talking. Those things will just sometimes bubble up to the surface. Like when the body is relaxed, the mind lets itself be known. And when you talk about doing therapy, when these things happen as a first line, Is it also, would you say, important for someone to find a therapist who has experience with reproductive health or some of these things specific to that time period? So there certainly are therapists that specialize in that. I don't think that's as critical because you're not talking about, so psychiatry, you know, you you want to consider medication and how that may affect the baby. When you're talking about therapy, you're not concerned necessarily with the baby at that point on a medical level. So I think just getting a therapist that you're aligned with, I tell my patients that therapy is like dating. It has to be a good fit. So you meet someone, you give it like three sessions, and if it doesn't feel like a good fit, that's okay. You move on, you find a new therapist. It has to just feel like a good fit, meaning you feel heard, you feel like it's effective, and you're making progress after time. When I had ADHD, I went to a psychiatrist to talk about it. I, By the way, I think I, I'm sure I had ADHD as a kid. It was never diagnosed. I was not the, I wasn't the hyperactive kid. <laughs> I called myself ADDD, attention deficit donut disorder. Like <laughs> when I'd feel that my brain would shut and not want any more information, but I'd have to sit there and shove in information. I just want to eat a donut and then like sort of self-medicate on my Krispy Kreme. So uh, vitamin K. So what happened is I just didn't get diagnosed. Uh, I, I kind of ate sort of A minus B plus student always, and um, I can compensate for it in other ways. Then at 39 or somewhere around there, I was exploring ADD a little bit. Some of my patients were talking about their experiences going off their medication during pregnancy and how these very successful lawyers would talk about getting back to their work but still not taking the medication because they're breastfeeding and they didn't want to take the medication while breastfeeding and just like being in court and just losing the train of conversation. Uh, One of them told me that, you know, everybody in the court assumed she's hard of hearing Mm. because like she'll just all of a sudden say, what? I'm sorry, what was that? And they'll just assume she's hard of hearing. So say it again louder. Mm. And she just went with that because she didn't want to know that she just totally lost the conversation. Mm. Um, so, but when I sat down with my psychiatrist and was diagnosed at that time, it was, I think about a three and a half minute visit. So I know your visits are a lot longer and that you do other things besides just collect symptoms and dispense medication. What's your approach? So I, yeah, I don't see anybody for less than 30 minutes and I do, you know, 30 minutes to 90 minutes, depending on the patient. 
And some patients are fine with going in for a very short visit if they're on medication. But for me, I like to kind of mix medication and therapy because I think we all need support. And that's a way to deliver it, even during a medication visit of 30 minutes. So we talk about kind of life updates. And I, you know, with some patients, I just do therapy and they don't want medication. So every, you know, every person, every woman is different. Some women during pregnancy you know, want to go off medication completely and just do all sort of natural things, therapy and lifestyle things. And that works for them. And so for some people, I see them just for 45-minute therapy sessions. Um, and we kind of process what's going on in their life. And then for other women, again, kind of embracing what is the spectrum to be a woman. Some women need to be on multiple medications during pregnancy. And so we talk about their life, but then we also talk about the medications and how they're doing and make adjustments as needed. All right, we're coming up on a second break. When we come back, I want to talk about some of the effects of these medications, like why people are not eager to take them, even though they help, and some of the effects that they may have on the pregnancy or in breastfeeding, and some of the other stigmas that get in the way from people seeking out help. We will be right back with Dr. Kirsten Thompson. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Kirsten Thompson. All right. So, you know, we did an episode of our podcast with Amanda Seifert, and she talked about her OCD, and she talked about her anxiety and her panic attacks and how she uh, took medication, low-dose medication, all throughout pregnancy. And the media picked that up, and there was like this, I think a blogger picked it up and said how she, you know, shouldn't have taken the medication during pregnancy. I don't know who the blogger was, but it's kind of sparked this storm. And I think reputable media outlets brought in professionals. And and for the most part, they agreed that it's probably she did the right thing. Mm -hmm. So there's reasons like this. There's a lot of stigma around mental health in general, and then especially during pregnancy and breastfeeding, that get in the way of people seeking out care. Uh, My wife, uh, who you know, is a perinatal psychologist, and she's gone to OBs and tried to really push them to do a third trimester mental health checkup. Mm-hmm. Just to get a pulse, like how is this person doing? You check everything else. You check the urine and you check the blood and the blood pressure and the amniotic fluid, how big the baby is. What, that's all physical. What about the mental health? How is the whole package here? You can't separate mind and body. And the pushback that she gets is that in their experience, women who are struggling, who haven't said anything, are going to lie because they're afraid that if they are perceived as having a mental health issue, their baby will be taken away or Mm -hmm. something like that, or they won't be a fit parent. So first of all, let's talk about the medications themselves and why people are so passionate about other people not taking them. What are the concerns? Well, I think people have the worst case scenario as it relates to the baby getting exposed to medication in mind. And there certainly are medications throughout history that have been found to cause major birth defects. And so I think that's what people have in the back of their mind. The reality is every medication has to be looked at differently because, for example, people take tons of Tylenol during pregnancy for headaches and things like that. And that's thought to be pretty safe. So 
We need to look at each woman individually and what medication she's on and then make a decision. Also based on her symptoms and history. So before I talked about, you know, worst case scenario for some woman, maybe if she's depressed and ends up feeling suicidal, that ending her life and therefore the babies while pregnant would be much worse than exposing her to a medication. Um, and a caveat to that is many of the medications now are just thought to be generally very safe. It's just that there's kind of a discussion that needs to be had about the risks and benefits and alternatives of each medication. But for some women, also, I've had a patient who, you know, had such severe anxiety, wanted desperately to get pregnant, was, you know, in her 40s, went to great lengths to do IVF and get pregnant, and then became so anxious off medication that she ended up having a termination of a mm. baby she really wanted, wow. um, but because the anxiety was so strong and uncontrolled. And so that's a loss of a pregnancy that she actually wanted, but because her mental health was not being adequately treated. So it's really every medication is different, every woman is different, and it makes sense to evaluate the medication and kind of the research we have on each medication and the risks and benefits, because now many, many medications, namely the SSRIs, are thought to be relatively safe and as of right now don't increase the risk of major birth defects uh, beyond what happens in nature kind of on its own for women who aren't on medication. So the incidence doesn't go up just because you're taking that medication. Exactly. Like the 3 to 5% of women in general on no medication may have a baby with a major birth defect because of nature or God or whatever you kind of believe in. Mm -hmm. um, and women, as of right now, on SSRIs have that same 3 to 5% risk. What are some examples of SSRIs? Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil, mm. although Paxil has a little bit of a different story, but Celexa. You know we want to know the Paxil story. Lexapro. <laughs> yeah, there was one study years ago that showed kind of a, you know, basically a bigger defect with that medication. Mm -hmm. And then that study was actually later refuted. Oh. So for the most part, we think the SSRIs are generally thought to be very safe. There's you know, sort of little things to know about them. For example, they may increase the length of pregnancy by a few days, but that's not meaningful when it comes to the overall health of the pregnancy. And there are risks too, and I always tell my patients this, you know, it's never a zero risk scenario. So if you're talking to someone who has a history of depression or anxiety, you have to talk about the risk of illness, which we know can cause preterm birth and growth restriction, and then the risk of medication. So we're always just weighing those two risks back and forth. It's a, a risk-benefit analysis, like any other medication or intervention that you do. And for one person, it may make sense to do a particular intervention or take a medication. For somebody else, it may not. Definitely. And I think for women who have a history of depression who go off their medications during pregnancy, their risk of relapse is around 60 to 70 percent. Wow. Versus women who stay on medication, their risk of relapse in the postpartum is about 30%. So it's just really important to kind of think about that when going off medication, what that looks like for each person. What about taking these medications in conjunction with breastfeeding? So great question. Again, each medication is a little bit different in how it transmits into the breast milk. But again, a lot of them are thought to be very safe. Even if it goes through the breast milk. Right. Even that things like the SSRIs go into the breast milk for the most part in very, very small amounts so that the baby is getting. And a lot of studies, for example, Zoloft's a really common SSRI, one of the ones I use the most in pregnancy, 
Um, and a lot of times it can't even be detected in breast milk. So we assume just like anything that goes in the mom goes in the baby, we assume on a microscopic level, but this, a lot of studies show that it can't even be detected. So the exposure is very low and it's much less than even that during pregnancy. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, myself included, are nervous about taking medications because of side effects. And uh, even when I was diagnosed with ADD and he's like, why don't you try Ritalin for a little bit? I, I sat on it for six months without even looking into what the side effects are just because I didn't want to take medication because in general medications always have some kind of side effect that's possible. When I finally got curious enough to look it up, I saw that the number one side effect was weight loss. And I was like, oh my God, this is like a miracle pill. <laughs> I'm like, will it also make my hair grow back? <laughs> so it's important to look, to look at, you know, to investigate. Yeah, definitely to know the medication and yes. What about the stigma in general? Just people afraid to, you know, if you have a broken leg, no problem. But if you're anxious, people judge you. So I hope things are changing, but that being said, they're they're certainly not changing fast enough. I think we try, and pretty much everyone tries to do everything in their power before they get medication and see a psychiatrist. So they change their lifestyle, they you know try to get help, they do therapy, and instead of feeling like it's a last resort and a stigma, I try to make patients feel empowered that medication is a tool. And it's a lever that they can pull to feel better. And it's great when I see people who finally elect to do that and they say, oh, my God, I feel so much better. People are so worried, too. Patients are worried about not feeling like themselves on medication. And more often than not, I see people feel kind of returned to themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. So I see that also in our clients, that, that, that exact thing. They're afraid to just feel too neutral or too, you know, no feelings at all. And then they take it and they're like, that's who I miss. That's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was. I'm glad to be back. You're an interesting, for like a, a surgeon, psychiatrist, pharmaceutical person, you're interestingly holistic in your own life. I try. <laughs> I mean, you're like a marathon runner. You're like a wellness person. Yeah, before kids. Um, <laughs> I did run six marathons and then I started having children. Um, but yeah, I think lifestyle for sure. So I, you know, try to, and I talk about this with my patients. I first and foremost advocate for self care time, and particularly in the postpartum too, even when you have this new baby, trying to cut out 10 or 30 minutes of alone time. But diet is really important to me. Exercise, eating whole foods is 60% less associated with depression than eating processed foods. So I advocate that for all my patients, pregnant or not. Exercise has been shown in so many studies to reduce the risk of anxiety and depression. So that's very effective. And therapy and medication alone, and in a lot of studies, have been shown to reduce the risk of depression in about 60%. So for sure, we want to try those things that don't include medication first. And I, you know, I'm an advocate personally too of therapy. I've done tons of therapy in the past, and you know, my husband's a fan of therapy too. At one point, I said we have to have fewer therapists. We're just like <laughs> overdosing on therapy for mm-hmm. ourselves. And right now, I see a life coach. Like I think everyone deserves a therapist, and the world would be better if we all had one. So I'm an advocate for all those lifestyle things and support. You know, one of the risk factors for postpartum depression is lack of support and lack of planning or an unplanned pregnancy. So those increase the risk of peripartum mood disorders. And so I think as much as we can, to a certain extent, plan our lives and be as supported by friends, family, therapists, et cetera, that makes mental health so much healthier. I have a weird question. Do other animals have postpartum sadness? I 
that. I don't know the answer to okay, that. I was if just I saw wondering. animals, I would I could hopefully talk to know. a peripartum veterinarian, veterinary <laughs> reproductive psychiatrist. Maybe that's an episode. I do know that we are the only mammals that don't eat our placenta, and that is a reason why many women advocate for placental encapsulation as a sort of means of reducing postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that as of right now, the data doesn't show that it's so effective, mm-hmm. and there is a risk that... Is that because there's not enough data or because... You know, possibly. I'm not an expert in placental encapsulation, so I always leave room for the option that it does work. And obviously also the placebo effect is profound. So maybe for someone who really does work, mm-hmm. um, but there's also the risk too that if, you know, the placental is kind of a filter. So if you're not eating necessarily an organic diet, the placenta can actually have filtered material from the woman's diet in it that you're then encapsulating and kind of taking again, if that makes sense. You mean your second go at poor nutrition? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like if you're eating food with pesticides and your placenta is catching it so the baby doesn't get it, and then you decide to encapsulate and eat your placenta, you know, you could in essence be kind of eating some of the toxins that your placenta was preventing the baby from getting. I've not to date seen large-scale studies on it, so without the data, it's really hard to know. Yeah, there's not too much Could be super helpful, could be not that great. We just don't know. Yeah, as of right now. Probably not that tasty. Yeah, I can't. Mm. Um, My final question is a weird one. Do you miss surgery at all? I do have moments of missing kind of the glory and the speed of it. Um, Different outfit. (laughs) Different, yes, definitely (laughs) different. And I miss wearing scrubs every single day and not having to spend any time thinking about what to wear in the morning. Mm. Um, So I do have those and sort of the critical nature of it. Psychiatry can be critical, but certainly not to the extent that kind of a life-saving message. doesn't have that big, like, ER heartbeat. Yeah, like the dopamine, you know, sort of rush, epinephrine rush of surgery. But I think for me, this was, you know, I I love my work. I get that from watching cable news. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're out of time. Uh, I've learned a lot from you yet again. Thank you for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Where can we find you online? You can find me at my website, which is www.thompsonpsychiatry.com, which is T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, psychiatry, which is P-S-Y-C-H-I-A-T-R-Y.com. It is a mouthful. (laughs) Thompsonpsychiatry.com. And uh, at home, thanks for listening. If you have topic ideas, and many of you seem to have topic ideas because they are coming fast and furious, but we read every email. We respond to pretty much every email. And uh, your topic ideas are what make our future episodes. So look for us on social media at Dr. Berlin, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N, or online at informedpregnancy.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a whole lot of questions for you.